Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. Job chapter 19. The, the world of numbers is spectacular. There are infinitely many sorts and sizes. Some of them are counting numbers with which we grew up and learned at the beginning, while others have uh, decimal points and fraction bars, the sight of which instills horror like the glimpse of a hockey mask or a Chucky doll. But let's not talk about those. And instead, instead, starting with zero, let's take the numbers with which we are accustomed. We like these numbers, don't we? They are nice, pretty, round numbers. In fact, we call this set of numbers the whole numbers. Focus on that. The whole numbers because they are whole, full, and complete. They have no fractional or decimal part. Now, if we take these whole numbers and include their negative equivalents, we have what we call the integers. Again, notice with the integers, these are also nice, pretty, complete numbers. No decimals or fractions. No reason to freak out. The integers are just the whole numbers in positive land and in negative land with zero thrown in for good measure. I believe that one of the primary themes from the book of Job is integrity. In spite of the heap of suffering which Job endures, the Lord proudly proclaims that Job, quote, still holds fast his integrity. Job chapter 2 and verse 3. And when things seemingly cannot get any worse, Job's wife argues that it's time for Job to dispose of his integrity, curse God, and die, Job 2.9. As it turns out, if we trace the English word integrity back to its roots, we find that it has a Latin origin and that it comes from the Latin word integer, meaning whole, complete, or full like those numbers we talked about. Therefore, in reality, any attack on a person's integrity is at its root an attack on that person's wholeness, completeness, the, the fullness of that person's belief system, ideology, code of ethics, or whatever's up for debate. Satan argues... The devil argues that Job lacks integrity and that Job will only honor the Lord when things are going well, as they apparently always have for Job. And so Job's fear of the Lord, it's not complete, it's not full. If, if we depicted it on a pie chart, Job's fear of the Lord would look like this, and the shaded region would be when times are good. And Job, yeah, he fears the Lord during that part, but, but, but over there, when things get rotten, Job will curse you, 
Satan essentially says to God. Brothers and sisters, to be clear, that picture right there is not integrity. There is no completeness or fullness. It's as ugly as a decimal point or a fraction bar. In chapter after chapter, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar vocally question Job's integrity. They basically argue that the shaded portion of this picture is the Job who is our friend, the Job we've always known, blameless, upright. But th th there must be something, some slice of his life that we cannot see in which he has dishonored the Lord. Thus, with Job's integrity in the crosshairs, I would like to focus in on Job chapter 31 with you. For the vast majority of this chapter, Job makes a series of if-then statements. If-then. In the if portion, and if you have Job 31 open, you can look at verse 5 or verse 9 or verse 13. Look at that real quick. 5, 9, 13. You should see the word if at the top of those. In these if portions, Job gives an example of how he could lack integrity in his own life. For example, a man who is dishonest, sketchy, and shady in his business dealings, that person lacks integrity. Next, in the then portions, which follow these if statements, Job typically pronounces an additional curse on himself if he's lacked integrity in any of those if areas. You know, I, I hear that, and I wonder if Job's friends, they step back and just wait for the lightning to strike down on Job as he says those things. As if the guy doesn't already have it bad enough, he just doesn't know when to stop, I can imagine them saying. Also, at times in that then portion, Job references his continual fear of the Lord as a reason why he would never even consider doing the thing that lacks integrity back in the if portion. So here's the deal. We know because the Spirit has revealed it to us in the Word of God that Job is not suffering, that Job is not suffering because he lacks integrity. We know that God holds Job up as one who holds fast his integrity. I am ashamed to admit that my faith all too often looks like one of those pie charts from earlier. So I need to be reminded about what integrity looks like. In a world in which I feel like I'm surrounded by hypocrites, inconsistencies, fakers, pretenders, I need to be inspired again to strive for integrity in my own life. And so if the Lord brags to the devil about the integrity of Job, then I think Job is a good place to go, a good person to look to if we want to learn about how to have integrity. And so two points I want to share with you tonight. First of all, Integrity means honoring God with all of myself, from my eyes all the way into my heart. Job presents same chapter, verses 33 and 34. Here we go. Here's one of those if statements. If I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart, 
because I stood in great fear of the multitude and the contempt of families terrified me so that I kept silence and did not go out of the doors, dot, dot, dot. You know, in this text, Job shares that a person lacks integrity when he or she commits and hides sin within one's heart. On the pie chart, it might look like this, with the shaded region being my external words and deeds as, as heard and seen by others, while that little bit over there is my heart where things are not exactly right. Again, that's not integrity. But here's the scary part. You have 33 and 34 there in front of you. Make sure you see this. Here's the scary part. Job presents that the reason why this takes place is that many simply fear other people. That they fear society's consequences or the disapproval of others. Now think about that. Therefore, if I didn't really have to be concerned with those things, then the sin which I conceal, I hide in my heart, would no longer have to be secluded there. It would also manifest itself in my words and actions too. For example, I ask you to humbly consider David, chosen by God as king because of all things, the condition of his heart pleased the Lord. Time passes, things change, and David becomes king. And he's the unquestioned ruler of Israel. No man will stand in his way. Late one afternoon, he sees a woman bathing on a rooftop. For almost every other guy, probably for every other guy in this room, the sin would remain there within the lust of his heart. She's another man's wife after all. And her husband is a soldier. He's a pretty tough guy. And what would others think? What might they do? But don't forget, David's king. And in this moment, he feels empowered to do what he wants and take what he wants with no consequences. And so the lust of the heart bursts forth and results in adultery and murder. And I can't help but wonder if this happened with one proclaimed to be after God's own heart, then what would I do if I had the power and the boldness of a king? What kinds of things would I do if I felt like I answered to nobody? Indeed, we commoners should not take comfort or satisfaction in our sins which only stay within our hearts because the truth is if we had power if there were no consequences if we answered to no one i can only imagine i dare to imagine the things we would do with the thoughts and intentions of our hearts back to our main text job 31 in the middle of verse 7 job describes that the heart goes after the eyes when one lacks integrity as a result, it would stand to reason that if one protects his or her eyes, then a person can better protect the heart. Let me say that again. If you can protect your eyes, then you can better protect the heart. Now, there is a really interesting word in Hebrew, and there it is. And I know what some of y'all are thinking. 
you're thinking, boy, that Hebrew word sure looks southern to me. It looks like playing and saying and all those kind of things. It's not the same thing. You have to trust me here. Take a look with me. Uh, we go into Pierce and his outline of biblical usage. That word we just saw, primarily, if you look at that first entry, means eye. Remember, we are talking about protecting eyes. But if you notice, it has a second meaning as well found at the bottom. It can also mean spring or fountain. Now, isn't that something? Think about that for a moment. A question. If your eye is like a fountain, then what is flowing from it to your heart? Pure, pure, pristine, living water? Or something more akin to what you'd find underneath New York City in a Ghostbusters sequel? How... Is Job, though, able to maintain his integrity from his eyes to his heart? Look with me at verse 1 in Job 31. He said, he begins, I made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Uh, I've already shared with you guys some of my travails as an options day trader. It's, it's good sermon material. If you're, if you're a preacher or a preacher in training out there and you want to have great sermon stories about tragedies, go trade options for a while and you'll have some great stories. But one of the things that my instructor taught me and said, he said, all right, you see a trade that you like and you're going to go and you're going to hit enter on that trade. Before you hit enter, it better be knife obvious to you, knife to your th to your throat, obvious, the audience would ask, no, 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 he said, you better be so sure that that trade is what you should do that if somebody were to hold a knife to everyone you loved and cared about, to their throats, and said, do you still want to hit enter? Do you still think this is going to work? Do you still believe in this? If you'd still hit enter, then that's a trade you do. But otherwise, you're playing, you're messing around. To me, I read this, and Job is saying, when it comes to what my eyes look at, it is knife to your throat. No, it is knife to everybody I love and care about. It's that serious to me. Knife at the throat. Serious business. I think this is Job's way of saying that when it comes to his eyes, what they see, what they behold, it is serious. Nothing to be taken lightly. I mean, that's what the word covenant expresses to me, a covenant Something carefully and respectfully considered, with promises made. No backing out, so you better be sure. Something like, my eyes will only look on that which is good, honorable, just, right, and pure. And if I break that covenant, you get something pretty close to what, what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 29. And I, you can look it up for yourself, but that to me is the seriousness, Matthew 5, 29, of what Job is saying here. Tragically, promises mean so little, promises mean so little to so many. And likewise, we allow our eyes to look at whatever we please. So much leniency, so much loosey-goosey garbage. Just remember, your heart, as Job said, will go after your eyes. Second, look with me then at verse 2. Let's take a look at it first in the New King James Version. 
For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Do you understand what Job is asking here? If this continues the thought from verse 1, he's saying that before, before looking at something, he asks, is, is that something allotted to me by God? Is, is this part of what God has given to me? That right there is a fantastic question. That body after which you lust does not belong to you. God hasn't given it to you. It belongs to her husband or to her future husband. If what I gave you was too little, I would add to you much more. God tells the sinner David, and he tells us as well. This truth, it extends to all parts of life, all things that our eyes first see and then our hearts desire. The question that matters is this, what is the allotment from God to us? However, other translations like the English Standard Version believe that Job asks the following, what would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Then if you look forward, if you got this, this chapter open, you look at verse 3, it expresses the disaster and the calamity. That would be the end result. Job conveys over and over again in this chapter that the constant awareness of God's glorious vengeance served as a regular reminder to live a life that's filled with integrity. And then if you look at verse 4, Job, he remembers that no sin of the heart is ever hidden from God. He sees all of Job's ways. Integrity means being full of integrity from the heart to the eyes. And then we will look at point number two. Integrity means honoring and loving all people. We can all be on our best behavior when the parents are around, when the teacher's in the room, when the boss is in the office. In these moments, we're just equals with our siblings, with our classmates, or with our coworkers, especially when compared to those positions of authority. But what happens when we become the parent or the boss? What takes place when we become the older sibling and we, and we feel the power? Guzik writes, the goodness of a man or woman is often best indicated by how they treat those thought to be inferior to them, not how they treat their peers or those thought to be superior to them. In verse 13, if you have it open, Job notes his responsibility to respectfully listen and make sure that justice is served when his servants have a complaint. Then in verses 16 to 21, he communicates his continual obligation to help those in need, such as the widow, the orphan, the one without clothing. How is Job able to maintain his integrity in dealing with others? And remember, integrity means completeness and fullness. So it's not integrity if you don't do it for all people. It's just partial, incomplete. How's Job able to do it? Well, first, observe his question in verse 15. Did not he who made me in the womb make him? 
and did not one fashion us in the womb. Within this verse, there is Job's realization that both he and the servant were equally dependent on the creative power of God. Job couldn't make himself or form himself. Second, there's an understanding of their shared heritage. Job and the servant were both created by one and the same creator. They come from the same being, from the same place. The one who fashioned Job also fashioned the servant. And third, there's the testimony of their common value. Value. Both are carefully crafted creations of God, but neither is more valuable or more precious than the other. On top of these things, as we remember that all men and women are made in the likeness of God, James 3.9, all men and women are made in the likeness of God, we will then treat them with the honor and the love we would give to God. That's the idea. Also, observe Job's defense in verse 18. From my youth, the fatherless grew up with me as with a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. Some think Job is just being poetic. The guy's, the guy's just saying he's always helped people. But I think there's something more here. I think that Job is saying that ever since he was a little kid, for as long as he could remember, he was around the orphan and helping the widow. Now, now a question for you, how do you think that happened? I mean, I think the answer's pretty clear. Job must have grown up in a home that welcomed the orphan. He had parents who trained and encouraged him to help those in need. And wouldn't you know it, Job, when he grew up, did the same things in his house. You know, lots of people have lots of answers for how to address this country's ongoing issues with racism. Answers like money, legislation, uh, protests, voting, targeting statues, flags, historical figures, and names. I'll let you debate the validity of those methods on your own. That's fine. But let me just say this. I believe, and it's just my opinion, you can take it or you can throw it back in my face after we're done here, that Job learned to be a respectable, impartial, unbiased, just, and gracious man of integrity, not from some mandated elementary school curriculum, but through the love filled training of his parents, of godly parents. Honoring and loving all people must mean all people or it's not integrity. And yet, even Job, Job knew what that meant. All people, really? All people? Look at verse 29. Job must not rejoice at the ruin of him who hates or exult when evil overtakes him. In verse 30, Job testifies that he has not let his mouth sin by asking for the life of his enemy with a curse. Integrity, fullness, completeness, consistency means loving and honoring all people, not just your peers, not just your boss, but all people. And yeah, even your enemies. Now, if I ask the typical Christian before hearing the message tonight, who's the one who said, who is it? Who is it that said, don't lust after a woman in your heart? Who said to care and provide for the widow, 
the orphan, the hungry, the naked, and so on? Who told you that you shouldn't hate your enemies or wish them harm? Who condemned hypocrisy, doing one thing in public and another in private? Who warned about putting your trust in riches? That's verse 24, and, and we didn't even talk about that. Who is the one who said that? Who do you think the typical Christian would say? <laughs> That's Jesus, right? Sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount when you think about it. But, but here's a guy in Job some 1,500 to 2,000 years earlier before Jesus' earthly ministry that was basically saying the same thing. And this is big. I think it's because what it takes, what it takes to be a person of integrity hasn't changed. It's still the same now as it was then. So all of us need to stop pretending like we don't know. We need to stop pretending entirely. We need to be genuine people of integrity. Authentic. Real. Fully. Completely. Wholly devoted to Jesus with every part of your being. Integrity is a term which is also used in the engineering field. As an example, whether or not a bridge has the structural integrity to withstand a specific load over a duration of time. And a bridge can fail for lots of reasons. Poor materials, improperly assembled, fatigue, corrosion over time, even outside reasons such as a natural disaster or sabotage. A question for you, if your life is a bridge designed to get you to eternity with God, if your life is that bridge, does it have the integrity to get you there? Or is there something wrong on the inside with the material? Maybe it's just put together all wrong. Or over time, it's just worn down. Or disasters in life have ruined it. Thankfully, through his perfect and holy, devoted life, through his death and resurrection, Jesus can be the bridge that can get us to God. But you must trust in him. And that means leaving your old ways, confessing his name, and being immersed and baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. If you need to devote yourself once again anew to a life of integrity, if you need to trust in Jesus here this evening, please come while together we stand and sing.